You know, I think all of us as children have heard stories that just filled us with great expectation, especially those that are guys that grew up watching sport and just, just loving competition. We all grew up hearing about stories of, of athletes that, that worked really hard, that overcame all the odds and became champions, and everyone's just adoring them, and it's just in awe of their their athletic accomplishments. And we've also been told through various messages in our world that the humble girl who lives with integrity becomes the princess. And we're told that the hardworking, brave young man, even though he may be out and discouraged or on the fringe of society, if he works really hard and shows great valor, then he'll become the prince, and, he, and then he'll get the beautiful princess. And so we're told through various means in our world that if you work really hard and if you're a good person, then success is ripe around the corner. But I think what happens is as we grow older and become adults and we realize that that tends to be fantasy and we think, well, in the real world, there are smart people that work for some really dumb people. Is this not true? And what's also in the real world is that people that are honest get ripped off by evil people. And there are qualified people who should get the promotion don't get it because of office politics. And the most qualified person, sometimes she doesn't get the job because the boss hires his girlfriend, who is not qualified for that position. And so we come to realize that in our lives under the sun, to use the Ecclesiastes language, life under the sun in this world that is broken and corrupted. We are not guaranteed to live happily ever after with your prince or your princess. That just is not true of this existence. Now, this may sound like it's harsh, but it's also real. And I'm being very honest, and we all know this to be true. Now, when we face these realities that there is no happily ever after, a lot of people respond with depression or with despair, with great frustration. And they think, well, it's just not fair. If you're kind and you work hard, then you get overlooked. Or maybe you get taken advantage of. It's just, it's just sometimes we can respond with being jaded or, or really cynical or frustrated. But there is this gift that God's given to us. And that gift is his word, himself, his spirit. And his spirit speaking today through his word in the book of Ecclesiastes is a tremendous gift. You see, the book of Ecclesiastes that we've been studying for the last couple of months describes our world how it really is. With no sugarcoating with no pretending, 
It's just saying, look, it's raw, it's real. This is the reality of our broken world. So this is what real life is like under the sun. And it describes how our souls cannot find ultimate peace or joy or meaning with anything under the sun that is created. Ecclesiastes shows us that what our lives would look like if we try to live it apart from God being at the center. And so the theme of Ecclesiastes, if you want it in one simple sentence, is life is meaningless without Jesus. Life is meaningless without Jesus. See, God has a purpose in your pain. He doesn't waste a hurt. If you are struggling with whatever it is that you're struggling with, you have to know and believe with the authority of God's word that God has a purpose and a plan. And God uses your disappointments and your frustration to drive you to Jesus. That is the purpose. He uses whatever you're going through that is difficult or disappointing, and he uses it through the power of spirit with his word to push us closer and to draw near to our first love, Jesus. So let's continue in our series in Ecclesiastes, a series called, Is It All Meaningless? And the answer is, yes, it is, apart from Jesus. Ecclesiastes will be in chapter 9 today. Again, we don't have the benefit of the screen, so I apologize for that technical difficulty. But we're in Ecclesiastes 9. We'll be looking at verses 11 and 12 here to begin with, and we will then continue through chapter 10 the rest of this morning. So Ecclesiastes 9, let's begin with verses 11 and 12. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So again, you see this theme in Ecclesiastes that our world is broken and disappointment and pain are very real. So that's what we're seeing here in Ecclesiastes verses 11 and 12 in chapter 9. He says, those that are the fastest don't always win the race. Sometimes they lose. Even though you would think the fastest always win, sometimes they don't. And he says, the strongest don't always win the battle. And those who live wisely don't always come out on top. Sometimes nice guys finish last. There's a reason why that expression exists. It's in Ecclesiastes. Painful things happen to all of us is what this is saying. And in, in that situation, which is so real and painful, it can seem like God's not there. It can seem like life is just out of control and there's no God who is ruling sovereignly over us. It can seem like, well, where is God? The world is spiraling out of control. And as Solomon says, it can seem like it says time and chance is ruling the day. It just seems like it's just random. 
And as a matter of fact, our atheist friends, if you ask them how the world came into existence, they'll quote the Bible. They'll go to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 12, and they'll say, time and chance. Time plus chance is how the world came into existence with the naturalistic evolutionary world view. And so what you have here is Solomon saying, this is what it looks like. If there's no God, all you have is time and chance. There's no God who is ruling. But as we have seen in Ecclesiastes, plus in the rest of the Bible, clearly we know that God is ruling. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is good. He is not disconnected. He has come near. He is still on his throne, and he has a plan. And we can Trust him in the middle of our disappointment, our frustration, our brokenness. And these two chapters, 9 and 10 of this book, remind us that God's plan is to display his glory through our lives. You exist to be a mirror. That's what you are as an image bearer of God. You were designed to display, to reflect his glory. So the more that your soul is captivated by Jesus like we sung my eyes are on you Jesus through it all my eyes are on you when our eyes are fixed on Jesus and our soul is satisfied in him then his spirit begins to heal and transform and we then display his character which is good and holy and merciful and patient we show what God is like with how we live And these two chapters, 9 and 10, also tell us that this is what we're called to do, but we can't control our circumstances. Things happen in our lives in this world that are beyond our control. We can't control our future. It says here we don't know what what there is to come. We don't know what's going to happen around the corner. You don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen. No, just like yesterday, it was Thanksgiving. So I, I had planned ahead, took the day off. I took my children to go to the park to go play and have a good time on this American holiday. And so we're on the playground, and then my two-year-old son, Nathaniel, breaks his collarbone. And it was just terrible. And so we were at the ER for half of Thanksgiving yesterday. And so it's like, okay, that wasn't exactly planned. I, I didn't have that on my agenda I had planned to eat turkey. That was, that was on the agenda, which we did do that after all. But after spending a lot of the day in the, in the ER, things happen that you can't control and you don't know what's going to happen. And the key is how we respond to that which is unknown or uncertain in our lives. So you can't control your circumstances, but God does give you the opportunity to control how you will respond. And this is what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes. And so let me give you the main idea. So I know it's not on the screen, at least not today. So the primary truth from this text is you can't control what happens to you. But God calls you to respond by growing in wisdom. Let me say it again. You can't control what happens to you. But God calls you to respond by growing in wisdom. 
This is what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes 9 and 10, is when things happen that are difficult or painful, disappointing, it's an opportunity that God is presenting to you to grow in wisdom. So we have a choice to make in life. We always have a choice. We can respond in one of two ways. There's lots, but they're summarized in two, according to Ecclesiastes. You can respond with foolishness. Foolishness is trying to find ultimate joy and meaning with things under the sun, with using the gifts that God's given to us to enjoy and making them idols, to find ultimate meaning from them. And so idolatry is foolish. It leaves us empty. And so we can respond with foolishness, or we can respond by growing in wisdom. So we choose folly or wisdom. And how we respond to life circumstances is going to depend largely on what we truly believe deep inside of us. And so we're going to see this morning that we can choose obedience, that we can choose Jesus over idols, that we can choose life over enslavement, bondage to the things of this world. We can choose joy even in the face of disappointment. We can if we will grow in the wisdom of God. And so the next paragraph, verses 13 through 18 in chapter 9, gives us a story. It's an example of foolishness. It describes a small town that's being attacked by a powerful king and a massive army. And this small town has no hope of survival, death, and destruction is imminent and inevitable. And so then it describes that there's this man who is there, who is poor and not important and not respected, but he's a man of wisdom. And through this person's wisdom, the city is saved. Let's read verse 15 and see what happens, though, with this person who is wise. Verse 15 reads, But there was found in it, a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. And that's a bummer. I mean, he saves the city. It's through his wisdom that the city is rescued and people are saved. But what you see here is that even though they were saved, they all quickly forgot about this man and forgot about wisdom. They weren't interested. They returned back to their foolish and evil patterns that presumably got them in trouble in the first place. What you see here is that foolish people never listen. They don't learn. They receive the instruction. They receive the godly counsel and the wisdom. And it goes in one ear and goes out the other ear. And they go about doing it their own way like I've taught my children you can learn one of two ways. You can learn the easy way or you can learn the hard way. And the easy way is following wisdom, what your parents teach you, your teachers at church, wisdom from God's word. And you learn from others' mistakes. And you learn from God's word and you can learn the easy way or you can learn the hard way, which is a lot of pain typically. That's the hard way. And people who are foolish don't learn either way. They don't learn. It's like they keep getting in trouble and experiencing pain, and they just don't learn and don't 
listen. There, and we'll see in a few minutes what the solution is. But here we're looking at this text and we're seeing the fools just don't. And so chapter 10, the next chapter in the same theme, calls people to not be foolish, but to choose God's wisdom over the foolishness of man. And so chapter 1, um, I mean chapter 10, verse 1, rather, says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointments give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So perfume creates this pleasing aroma. Just like wisdom is designed by God to create a pleasing, pleasant environment in your life. That's what wisdom is designed to do. But just like a dead fly in the ointment, will ruin the aroma, so foolishness will stink up your life. It'll stink it up. Look, I have two small children at home, one still in diapers. And there are some days I'll change the diaper and I'll, I'll leave it somewhere. Like, I won't put it in the trash. I know that's foolish. But what happens later is you'll come in the room and it's like, whoa, what happened in here? Because you forgot about the diaper. And the whole room or the whole floor just gets stinked up. There's a stench. And so what do you have to do? You have to find it. You have to find, okay, where is that forgotten diaper? You have to go hunt it down, track it, and then, of course, wear gloves and grab the, you know, the diaper. Um, and then go put it outside you know, in the dumpster. Get out of your house because it's stinking up the place. This is foolishness. This is what happens in our lives. We have to track down that foolishness that is literally stinking up your life. And it's not an aroma that is pleasing to God, but it's a stench that is not displaying his glory. And it's bad for our souls and our relationships. We're not going to be on mission. We're not going to be healthy. So we need to find it and get cleaned up and get the folly out so that we can have this pleasing aroma. Verse 2, again, so in chapter 10, it says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. So he says, wisdom, you're inclined, you have a propensity, so you're, you're drawn towards the right. And he says, but a fool, there's a propensity, he's drawn towards the left. So what this describing is what is right and wrong and what is holy and what is not. And so being inclined towards the right is describing towards holiness and righteousness. And we have a desire, a heart beats fast, and we want to obey, and we want to live increasingly holy lives. We want obedience. But inclined to the left is foolish, and that is being drawn towards sinful patterns and desiring that. And the rest of this chapter, I won't read all of it, but it describes how foolish people lack sense, and they make bad decisions, and they're controlled by their tongue, and they hurt other people, and they don't honor God. That's what you see in chapter 10 as far as what foolishness is. But the Spirit of God is calling us to grow in wisdom. Even though we're all going to face circumstances that are beyond our control, we're called to grow in wisdom. So before going any further in this text, let's just pause for a few seconds. And let me just ask you a question. Are you disappointed today? 
is there something in your life that as you look at it, you think to yourself, man, this is just not the way I thought it was going to be. Marriage is it's not turning out in the way I thought it was going to be. This career, it's just not panning out. Having children is less satisfying than maybe I thought it would be. Whatever it is in your life, are, are you facing something that is truly disappointing? And there have been circumstances that have been out of your control and your life is just not what you wanted. If that's you today or on whatever level that might be, whether that's a minor or a very major reality for you, this is God's word for you. And he's speaking to you today. He speaks to the brokenhearted. He loves you. And he doesn't want you to live disappointed. He wants you to know that what's happened beyond your control is not beyond his control. And he has a purpose in it. And your life still has meaning and value. And God still loves you. It's on his throne. And he can fill you and satisfy you and use you for his glory. Solomon gives some examples here of of things that can happen accidentally that you can't control. Like in verses 8 and 9, it describes falling into a pit. Anyone can fall into a pit. It's just an accident. Or he says tearing down a wall like you're doing construction and you're remodeling the wall and then there's a snake in it and you get bit by it. Well, that wasn't your fault. You didn't know that was there. And so he gives examples even like he says if you're cutting stones, quarrying or cutting logs, like work, and then you get injured. He's like, well, that's not necessarily your fault. These are just circumstances. Anyone can get hurt at work. It's just life. Accidents happen. Things that you can't see around the corner in our world can happen that are difficult or painful. So he gives some examples of this. So again, the, the primary truth here is you can't control what happens to you. But God calls you to respond by growing in wisdom. If you read in verse 12, for example, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. So you're saying that people that are foolish, their words are foolish. And the beginning is verse 13. The beginning of words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words. And so again, in the same theme continues on. He's talking here about how people that are foolish, their words show that they're foolish. This is important for us to understand because oftentimes we are responding to life's challenges, our pains, and our frustrations in life. And what we're trying to do is regain control because we feel life is just out of control and it's not happening the way we thought. Finances aren't what we thought they were going to be. Our debt is getting higher than we wanted it to be. The job they work out, the investment didn't work out, the whatever is not working out. The retirement is, is not really where it needs to be. And, and whatever it is, and you're frustrated, and your marriage is where you want it to be, and your kids, you name it. And so we want to get control back and just have the sense of security that we've got this. I've got this. 
but we realize, I don't got this. But we want to, and so we want to regain control, and so we will turn to things to make ourselves feel better. But we're disappointed. And then we want to manipulate people and control them so that we feel better about what's going on inside of us. And we just hurt them and ourselves and and begin to drift further away from God. This is by means, a very brief overview of Ecclesiastes 9 and 10, describing folly and wisdom. So let's take a few minutes and better understand this text and try to apply it to our lives, because otherwise, what's the point? It's just not just a religious academic exercise. It's, it's to be transformed by the Spirit as we focus on His Word. What you see here is what foolishness is like and what wisdom is like. That's what you're seeing here in, in this text. And so let, let me give you three truths on, from this text on what foolishness looks like. Number one is a foolish person dislikes correction. A foolish person dislikes correction. We read about this wise man that saved the city and everyone ignored him, forgot about him. Why? Because fools dislike being corrected. They don't want to hear it. Are you a teachable person? Are you teachable? Are you approachable? How do you respond to loving, encouraging correction, to being admonished? Oh, I'm great at it, Pastor. Now, maybe so, but what if we ask your wife in private? Or if we ask your husband without you in the room? Or if we ask your children without you in the room? And say, hey, is mommy and daddy approachable? Are they, kid, do they ever admit when they're wrong? What would your kids say? They live with you. So they're going to know the truth. And so as a parent, I believe it's important that we be honest with our children when we mess up and say, son, I'm sorry I lost my patience with you. I was wrong. Will you forgive me? Or whatever it is, being honest, admitting that you need to be corrected as well. The foolish person wants control, not correction. Want to manipulate, which is why in our church we focus on discipleship relationships, why we have home groups, but also discipleship groups. We have groups of 8 to 12 home groups. We also have groups of 3 to 4 of the same gender discipleship groups. We need both. We need people in our life that know us and that we can hold accountable and that can lovingly correct us. Otherwise, we will be foolish. We need daily correction from the word. Hear me. Daily correction. We cannot go one day without course correcting. Every single day we need fresh intake of truth from God's word and from other people that will speak it to us. Fools hate correction. The reason why it's so important that we have people that we're close to who love us enough to speak truth to us is because it helps you fight against your natural desire. We all have a natural desire to hide our sin, to shift blame to other people, to pretend everything is okay. We all do this. It's foolish. We need truth in our lives spoken by other people. So number one, a 
fool dislikes correction. Number two, a foolish person is drawn to evil. So dislikes correction and is drawn to evil. We just read how having your heart inclined to the left. So here's a progression. Here's how this happens in our lives. It begins with our own brokenness. We're all broken. Let's just be honest and not pretend that we're not. No one here has it all together. All of us are equally sinful and broken, and we all have struggles. We need the loving, correcting body of Christ. We all, including me, are a member of this church as much as you are. So it starts there with our brokenness. And this, we all have deep pain, frustrations. And this can, this can be deep-rooted from your childhood. And there's a lot of adults that have never actually faced the reality of the pain from childhood. And they're walking wounded. Adults, sometimes even seniors, that have never actually faced the pain that they experienced in childhood. And it has affected their whole lives and how they treat people. But, it, I mean, it's not just that. It could be financial struggles, emotional trauma, abuse, fear. This can be any kind of fear, fear of the future. This can be financial problems. This can be physical illness that can be difficult, or someone that you love has physical illness, or it could be, I don't know, a death in the family, a very profound person that you love passed away. So anything that happens to us in this world under the sun that is painful, and then we're walking around with this pain, this disappointment, this frustration, which the second point is, so it begins with our brokenness, but then we want relief, so we seek relief. We want it. And so what do we do? Well, we oftentimes, because we're sinful, we'll turn to an idol for relief because it hurts. Being broken hurts. And so we reach for the morphine, the pornography, the overeating, shopping, the impatience, career, another person. Whatever it is, we turn to it or him or her because our soul is broken. Which then it leads to becoming enslaved. So this being drawn evil begins. So we're drawn evil with, with there's brokenness, and then we want relief, but we look her with idols, and then we're in bondage. We become enslaved, and, and we have attitudes that are sinful, and then even behaviors that are sinful. But the problem was so insidious about this process of being drawn to evil is a foolish person dislikes correction. So they don't want to hear it. And so they're going further down the hole. And it's like they're, you start in the toilet and you go further down and now you're so far down, now you're in the sewer. And that can happen to us. It can happen. Lives have been destroyed because of addictions and all kinds of things that happen because they didn't receive correction their heart was drawn to evil. They didn't get the help that they needed, and it just spiraled, and it got way out of control. These are warning lights. It's like when you drive your car, and, and then the light comes on. It says, check engine. And you think, oh, that must be just a glitch. My car's fine. And you just keep driving it. That's foolish. Don't ignore 
your car's dashboard warning lights. They're there for a reason. It's telling you there is a system failure. Something in your car is not working properly. Go get it checked out. If you keep going on the path you're going, you're going to destroy your vehicle. Stop and get it serviced. Some of us need to stop and let our souls get serviced. The warning lights are disliking correction, feeling your heart drawn towards something evil, just feeling this pull, this desire for it. That's a warning light. Something is not well in your soul. Jesus can heal you in accountability with other people through his word. His spirit will heal you. But you have to stop and submit and go get. So the first warning light, this evidence of foolishness is disliking correction, being drawn towards evil. Lastly here is being dominated by the tongue. Being dominated by the tongue. This is where your tongue is controlling you. We read how it says that fools multiply their words and the words of his mouth is foolishness. It's foolish. So what we're seeing here is when someone is gossiping, speaking poorly of others, there's a deeper root. Something is going on inside that person that they enjoy gossip, that they enjoy oversharing what someone else told them that was in confidence, and they want to tell the people about it. This is evidence of something not being well. And in my observations, the reason is people that live very foolish lives and have their tongues out of control tend to be very insecure. And so in their insecurity, they talk bad about other people or they'll gossip because it makes them feel better about themselves. Rather than their soul healing, they just talk bad about other people so that it doesn't hurt so bad in their own soul. Or they'll dominate conversations that they never have to hear anyone else and they don't, they don't listen at the, at, at the root is there's this brokenness and there's insecurity that Jesus can heal if the person will submit to him. And so these are, these are marks of foolishness. These are warning signs. Things like, just like in correction, being drawn towards evil and being dominated by the tongue. That's what foolishness looks like. Now, but what does wisdom look like as we hear come to a close, as we kind of bring in the plane for a landing? What does wisdom look like? Like, it looks like this, drawing near to Jesus, the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. A wise person is someone that is regularly, intentionally drawing near to Jesus. They're walking in the spirit. They're walking in the light, not walking in perfection. I'm not saying holy perfection but they are walking in a holy direction. Not perfect, but changed. Their desires are different. They don't dislike correction. They, they are, don't have this constant draw towards evil, and their tongue is under control. So they're living a life that is wise, and they're doing so because they're drawing near to Jesus. You see, since we could not reach up to God's wisdom, 
God's wisdom came down. Wisdom is not ultimately an intellectual knowledge or information. It's not that. We live in the information age. You can Google on your phone. Like you in your pocket carry so much information. You can just Google and get info on any topic under the sun. And yet information is not wisdom. It's not the same. Wisdom is personally, experientially knowing. And it only comes from knowing God. The true wisdom from God only comes from knowing him. You must know Jesus. And so in the end, ultimately, wisdom is not a thing, idea, or concept. Wisdom is a person. 1 Corinthians 1.24 says Jesus is the wisdom of God. So he embodies wisdom. So Jesus suffered in order to end all the suffering and chaos, and he did it through the cross. And so the cross shows the infinite wisdom of God because only God could make a way for Jesus to come, die on the cross, uphold his holiness and justice, and make a way for us to be forgiven. He transforms foolish rebels into worshipers who are growing in wisdom. How is that possible? The power of God. Only he can do this because only he is all wise. We read earlier in the worship gathering from Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 17 says that God has given us the spirit of wisdom. If you've repented of your sins and are trusting in Jesus to save you, then you have received the Holy Spirit of God, and he is called the spirit of wisdom. And so you can walk in the spirit, be led by the spirit, and grow and grow in wisdom. It's knowing him. It's a relationship. And we can grow in this wisdom in the middle of our pain and disappointment. So do you want to grow in wisdom? Do you? I pray that you do. A lot of times our actions betray us, and we say, yes, I want to be wise, but really we don't. We want ease, we want comfort, or other things more, and we say we want wisdom, but really we don't. A hunger for wisdom is a hunger for purity. Hunger for wisdom is a hunger for the glory of God to be displayed through your life. And so hunger for wisdom is a hunger for the presence of God, for Jesus himself. Are we hungry for that? What are you hungry for? We need to see our pain as opportunities to display his glory as we grow in wisdom. You can't control your circumstances, but God does call you to grow in wisdom. May we be a people that understand this because this matters. We have a city to reach for Jesus, and it begins here with us. May we walk in victory, walk in holiness, and walk in wisdom for the glory of our risen Savior. Will you pray with me? Father, we do worship you today, and we praise you, for we know that you alone are good, and you are all wise. You have made a way for us to be forgiven, to know you, to belong to you, and through your spirit of wisdom who resides in us, those who have repented of our sins are trusting in Jesus alone as our Savior. We can truly grow in wisdom and display your glory and be filled with hope and meaning and joy. And so I pray that you would do this in our lives, for we are hungry for you and your presence. And we pray these things 
for your son whom we love because he first loved us, Jesus.